Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another Banner Lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum at the VHS. And as always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. And now, if you'll silence your cell phones, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Well, from the earliest years of the Commonwealth, gardens have had a special claim on the affections of Virginians. They planted the first gardens, of course, for utilitarian reasons, for vegetables and plants with medicinal qualities. But we now know that purely pleasure gardens date back at least to the late 17th century at Bacon's Castle in Surrey County. Since then, gardens, large and small, have beautified the landscapes around Virginia homes. For nearly a century, the Garden Club of Virginia has undertaken garden research and preservation work at numerous historic sites across the Old Dominion. It's restored and created beautiful landscapes for the education and enjoyment of all, from backyard gardens to design professionals. This effort has been essential to the restoration of some of the most historic gardens that have come down to us over the centuries. And I'm happy to announce today that the Virginia Historical Society website now has an online resource called the Garden Club of Virginia Historic Resources Project. This feature offers digital images of dozens of photographs, letters, and landscaping plans for 40 historic properties. How do you find it, you may ask? Well, just go to our homepage and click on the button marked Research. Now, with an important new book, we have the definitive record of the Garden Club's work here in Virginia, and that is Margaret Bemis's Historic Virginia Gardens, Preservation Work of the Garden Club of Virginia, 1975 through 2007. This volume discusses the work performed at historic sites across the state, and it is beautifully illustrated with images by award-winning landscape and garden photographer Roger Foley. Historic Virginia Gardens makes a significant contribution to telling the story of the Commonwealth's botanical and architectural heritage, and we're very grateful that the author could be with us again today. I say again because she has spent many hours in our reading room as part of the research for this book. Margaret Page Bemis is a former president of the James River Garden Club. She's been, a, she's been a member of the Restoration Committee of the Garden Club of Virginia, and she serves on the Archive of American Gardens Committee at the Garden Club of America. Her family has long been active in preserving Virginia's heritage, and I'm glad to say that part of the attention, that attention has been directed at the VHS. In fact, Margaret's joined today. We have two speakers. Also commenting will be Will Riley of Riley & Associates Landscape Architects in Charlottesville. Mr. Riley serves as the landscape architect of the Garden Club of Virginia. As such, he's been closely involved with the restoration projects that he and Mrs. Bemis will be discussing. So please join me in welcoming Margaret Bemis and Will Riley. Very kind. Um, first of all, I got to tell you something I just learned, which I said, who was Mr. Banner? And they said, well, there was no Mr. Banner. There is no Mr. Banner. It was a banner year, the year that we established these lectures. <laughs> In case the rest of you are wondering, that's who Mr. Banner is. <laughs> and since I'm talking about historic Virginia gardens, I will say good afternoon, which is the way I grew up saying it. It's a great compliment for Will and me to be asked to speak to you today about historic Virginia gardens. We're a pro-am team, and Will's the pro. 
as the amateur, no matter how terrified, I could not turn down this particular invitation to speak because without this library and the cheering support of all the people who work here, there would be no book. They made it fun as well as possible to make all the discoveries and learn about the recoveries described in the record of the preservation work of the Garden Club of Virginia from 1975 when Dottie Williams' book came out to through, through, through 2007, and I'm deeply in their debt. We're not going to give you a broad synopsis of the book this afternoon. First of all, that'd be boring, and secondly, you can buy it on the way out if you, if you haven't already. Rather, we would like to use this opportunity to go into a little more depth about two of the perhaps lesser-known properties, Bacon's Castle and Belmont. We hope you'll enjoy it. I'm often asked in tones of wonderment, particularly by my extended family, how I came to write this book. Their alternate comment is an incredulous, well, it's a beautiful book. I, three of them read it. Um, the, sh the short and accurate answer is Bessie told me to. Bessie, for those of you who don't remember or didn't, were not lucky enough to know, was the, Mrs. Robert Carter, and at first president of the GCV and then chairman of its restoration committee during the period when this project was born. As a member of the restoration committee, I was given the job of looking into reprinting that book, and to make a very long story short, all the publishers I talked to said, don't bother. You can still get it on the internet. But one of them added, if you're going to go to all that trouble, why don't you write a new one? So I took that innocently back to the restoration committee, and here I am. When the Garden Club of Virginia entered this game in the 1930s, the archaeological techniques of landscape and garden research were rudimentary, to say the least. My favorite tale is that of Morley Williams' architect and the Garden Club ladies driving up to Monticello late at night and shining the headlights on the lawn to reveal the ghost of the serpentine walk and the flower beds sketched by Jefferson in a letter to his granddaughter, Anne. There are those who say that this tale is apocryphal, that they only saw what they wanted to see, but I found it in the minutes of a meeting, and you can believe it or not, as you please. If you've seen my book, you will have noticed that the subtitle does not contain the word restoration for the simple reason that most of the gardens are not restorations, wherever or where and whatever they are. For only one, Virginia's executive mansion, did we have the original landscape drawing with every single plant specified, and that one could legitimately be termed a restoration. One or two are as, as exact as possible, given an intervening century or two, and for a few, there was enough documentation to come close. But some are well-educated guesses and sensitive new designs by the best landscape architects then interpreting each period in Virginia. And that list is a real pantheon. Charles Gillette, whose name is too well known to this audience to require much explanation. Arthur Shercliffe, Colonial Williamsburg's first landscape architect, his successor, Alden Hopkins, and his, Donald Parker, Ralph Griswold, Mead Palmer, Rudy Favretti, the first to be appointed landscape architect of the GCV, and Will Riley, who now holds that title, and was the eminence grise behind this book that we're about to tell you about. We call this lecture Discoveries and Recoveries, and our main discovery involved Bacon's Castle in Surrey County, 
dated by dendrochronological analysis to 1665. The background of its builder, Arthur Allen, who emigrated in 1649, and the education of his son and namesake, born in Virginia in 1651, who laid out the remarkable garden around 1680. I'd been curious about Bacon's castle for many years because I couldn't figure out how a house like that had come to be built there, and then, built then and there, excuse me. So when that enormous, bigger than a football field garden was uncovered in 1980, I thought, well, that explains it. But then when I started reading the records in preparation for writing this book, it didn't. I could find nothing in the written record that told anything at all about the background of Arthur Allen, the builder. And if you looked carefully at the archaeologist's drawings, they really posed as many questions as they answered. At about this point, Will and I drove down to Surrey to talk to Nick Lucchetti, the archaeologist in charge of the excavations. And on the way, Will started talking about the unusual dimensions of the garden, not only its size, but also its proportions, as well as the unanswered questions about the building foundations that Lucchetti had uncovered at the west end of the crosswalks and the unusual bell-shaped curve interrupting the planting beds at the north end of the central walk. It seemed to him that the garden had been laid out by someone with not only a sophisticated understanding of proportion, but also a familiarity with the English Renaissance garden. That being the case, the unexplained foundations could well have been those of exhedras and not compost piles or privet pits, as had been previously assumed. In addition, the bell-shaped curve was an unusual decorative element for a vegetable garden, which led us to wonder whether it was possible that this garden, laid out where it could be seen from inside the house, had not been planned for a dual purpose, subsistence certainly, but also a place of refuge, somewhere protected to walk in the cool of the evening with seats to rest and enjoy the garden. If that were to turn out to have been the case, it would shuffle the accepted history of landscape gardening in America. There were not supposed to have been any pleasure gardens with decorative elements in Virginia at that time. All that was thought to have come later in the Georgian period. Trouble was that I had been unable to find any evidence about Arthur Allen's background or any indication that his son, who had presumably laid out the garden, had had any experience other than that of the tenuous, hardscrabble frontier culture into which he'd been born in 1651. So then we arrived in Surrey, met Nick Lucchetti, and began to quiz him about the Bacon's Castle garden. He too felt that the exhedra theory was a likely one and that Will's notion about the proportions of the garden was particularly interesting. He also pointed me to his essay in Earth Patterns, Essays in Landscape Archaeology, edited by William Kelso and published by the University Press of Virginia in 1990. And unfortunately, it turned out to be out of print. I couldn't find it. Again, the Historical Society came to the rescue and produced the book in which Nick Lucchetti made reference to a letter which Kevin Kelly had uncovered in 1980 in the papers of Governor Francis Nicholson. In the 1970s, when the APVA was considering the purchase of Bacon's Castle, it commissioned Kevin P. Kelly, a historian at Colonial Williamsburg, to undertake a complete report on the history of the property. This report was the basis for the archaeological exploration of the site and the later interpretation of the garden. It was also the basis for my, for my research for the essay on Bacon's Castle, 
If anybody wants to read it, you can find it upstairs. When the report was written, no documents had surfaced which gave any clue to the background of Arthur Allen, the builder. Kelly was able to piece together a pretty full account of the life he led in Virginia from the time he arrived in 1649 until his death in the 1670s. He married Alice Luckin, who had accompanied him to the New World. He had a son in 1651, added steadily to his holdings, and became a wealthy and respected member of the community. He also may have been a merchant, possibly as a factor for an English firm. But that was it. There was nothing to explain how he had come to build such an impressive brick house when most of the houses of the period were smaller frame dwellings or any indication that there had been an early garden at all, or if there had been, that it was in any way unusual. But then in 1980, on an unrelated quest, Kelly came across part of a letter written by an unknown person in 1704-5, apparently in answer to a query by then-Governor Francis Nicholson about the younger Arthur Allen, whom he was considering appointing to a lucrative post in his government. This letter put Arthur Allen's brick house, which it was called until sometime in the 19th century, I think the Bacon's Castle title was a marketing gimmick, and its garden in a whole new light. It said that Arthur Allen, the immigrant, was no yeoman, as had been previously assumed, but a younger son of one John Allen of Droitwich in Worcestershire. John Allen was, according to the letter, a gentleman of an ancient, A-N-T-I-E-N-T, family and of 300 pounds per annum paternal estate. So Arthur Allen could have signed his name Arthur Allen Gentleman, which a lot of them did. In 1649, the year of his emigration, this was an important distinction. It was the year that Virginia announced its allegiance to the Stuart House after the execution of Charles I and gave refuge to prominent cavaliers. Allen may not have been a prominent cavalier, but he was a gentleman, clearly a royalist, who became a loyal follower of Governor Berkeley. Governor Berkeley, incidentally, came from a village in England called Bruton, hence Bruton Parish. He also had a legendary garden at his plantation near Jamestown, Green Spring, which appears in this 1781 map before the house and garden were lost. Note that the garden is in the same location relative to the house as the Bacon's Castle garden, and that it also seems to be laid out in a rectangular pattern of six large squares or rectangles. Here's the house at Green Spring, as the House of Green Spring, as it was painted by Benjamin Henry Latrobe in the late 18th century when it was almost a century and a half old. I have recently done a little research on the town of Droitwich in Worcestershire from whence Arthur Allen came. And during the 7th and 8th centuries, London and Droitwich were the centers of power for the Mercian kings, London because of its port and Droitwich because of its salt. One source says that it's unsurprising that this delightful town was the most frequently mentioned town in the Doomsday Book, for at that time, which is the 11th century, Droitwich was England's major salt-producing center. Salt continued to be produced here, and the medieval period saw Droitwich as the only industrial specialist in the Midlands. It's salt production that brought stability and prosperity to Droitwich. That was a long quote. That's the end of it. The town continued to flourish, and the Norman period gave Droitwich the beautiful church of St. Augustine. In 1066, London was the only town in England that paid more tax than Droitwich. 
The salt industry persisted into the age of photography, as this postcard illustrates, in Detroit, which is now known for its spa, famous for its salt baths. I also dug up another interesting nugget in the Droitwich research. It's, this is a complete diversion, but it's the kind of useless information and serendipitous coincidence that I love. The name Shirtliff pops up time and time again in searches of Droitwich genealogies. I was looking for Allen and came across almost nothing, but there was lots of Shirtliffs, S-H-E-R-T-L-E-F-F. At one point years ago, I toyed with the idea of writing a book about Arthur Shirtliff. My son was living in Boston, so when I was staying with him and he would go to work, I would repair the Boston Athenaeum to do research on Arthur Shercliffe, and the original spelling of Arthur Shercliffe's name was Shirtliff. He changed, he changed the spelling for some reason about the time he came to Williamsburg. That was never explained in any of the papers. To paraphrase Kipling, I've taken my facts where I found them and get back on point, the architecture of Old Droitwich is generally brick and half timber, but notice the Jacobean gables to the right. For the P.G. Woodhouse fans, this house, Brinkley Court, was the model for Bertie Worcester's Aunt Dahlia's house near Droitwich. When Arthur Allen, by then a wealthy merchant, built his house in Surrey County, he built a brick manor house reminiscent of the ones belonging to wealthy merchants or gentry that he would have known during his boyhood in Droitwich. This one's Westwood House, just outside of Droitwich, much as it would have looked to Arthur Allen, but minus the corner towers. While it's considerably grander than Bacon's castle, note the crenellated gables and even rotated chimneys on what was certainly the most famous house in Droitwich, originally built in the early part of Elizabeth I's reign on land given to the owner by her father, Henry VIII. The similarity to Bacon's castle is even more striking in the gatehouse because of its smaller size. I don't know how it was that Kevin Kelly's discovery of this letter played no part in the process of restoration of the Bacon's Castle Garden. Perhaps it appeared after the plans had been drawn and too late to change the direction of the restoration. Perhaps it was simply, as at Monticello, that people were apt to find what they're looking for. And in 1980, there was certainly no reason to be looking for signs of a very sophisticated garden with marked ornamental elements in Indian-infested 17th-century Surrey County, Virginia. In any case, I went down to Williamsburg to look for the letter, but it was not where it was supposed to be. It had been refiled since Lucchetti's 1990 citation, but by a stroke of pure luck, it turned out that Kevin Kelly was in the building at a meeting, which was about to break up. So finally he came out, seemed to think it was not the least bit odd to be more or less tripped up by a strange woman with an off-the-wall request and led me to the letter. This was the great discovery, and it's led me down other unexpected paths. The letter said that in, in 1660, Arthur Allen had sent his young son to England to be educated. You will recall that 1660 was the year of the restitution of the, the restoration of the monarchy. Have you ever noticed, by the way, how much Charles II looks like Bob Dylan? <laughs> Somebody once said, yes, and he was on a revolving throne. <laughs> um, the Allen child would have been eight or nine years old following a pattern of educating the sons of the English gentry, which continues to this day. He stayed in England for six or seven years, returning to Virginia before his father died in June of 1669. And this meant that the young Arthur Allen spent several formative years in England 
just at the time when garden design was becoming a major topic of interest. It also meant that the boy would doubtless have had relatives and family friends who took him in during vacations because he never came home in the middle of, a year of the, those years, and that they were members of the gentry who would have had gardens. In England, during the 1660s after the Restoration, there was a major, new, and widespread interest among the gentry in horticulture and garden design. During Cromwell's reign, even the joys of a garden were deemed vanities. In celebration of the end of Puritan austerity, gardens flourished again. The 1660s saw the beginning of the development of the public pleasure garden, which grew to be the center of English social life for the next 200 years. And the nobility and the gentry turned their attentions to their gardens as status symbols. A garden was a necessary appurtenance to a fashionable life. And this was the decade of young Arthur Allen's education in England, and the importance attached to gardens everywhere he went is bound to have penetrated even a schoolboy's consciousness. And this was also the time when John Evelyn began writing and rewriting his never-to-be-finished Elysium Britannicum, parts of which were published in 1664 as the Silva and the Calendarium Hortensa, and John Evelyn had an interesting connection to Virginia. His uncle, Robert Evelyn, was an investor in the Virginia Company in 1609 and was on the list of company adventurers in 1618 and 1620. His two sons, George and Robert, first cousins of John, moved to Virginia around 1634. Robert became Surveyor General of Virginia and a member of the council in 1637. George moved to Maryland. And in 1649, he went back to England for a visit and stayed with his cousin John. And that was the year that Arthur Allen came to Virginia. That same year, uh, George Evelyn bought 650 acres in James City County, Virginia, which he gave to his son. And James City County was eventually split into James City and Surrey. There's no doubt that the Virginia gentry stayed in touch with each other, that they were all keenly interested in what was going on in England, both politically and socially, and that they were anxious to keep up with the latest trends and fashions in England. Arthur Allen built his elegant brick manor house in 1665 while his son was in England. There are no contemporary letters remaining between father and son, but the new house is bound to have been a topic of shared interest. Whether there was any correspondence between them about gardens, nobody knows. We also do not know whether Arthur Pear laid out any kind of a garden, and if so, where it was. But we can be pretty sure that when Arthur Feast got around to planting his splendid garden, he did so with his English experience at the back of his mind, and possibly with advice from his patron, Governor Berkeley. He cited the garden orthogonally with the house, which means at right angles, I had to ask. He made a grand, and also where it could be seen from within. He made a grand garden as befitted a man of his station and the grand house it was to complement, and he designed it according to accepted geometric principles learned during his English education. So now we move on to our most notable recovery, which is probably Belmont, on a bluff overlooking the Rappahannock River in Falmouth, where Gary and Corinne Melchers left a treasure trove of letters and diaries on which to base a real restoration of the garden lovingly developed by two artists during the 1920s and 30s. The north half of the frame house was built in 1790 and enlarged in several stages during the 1850s. 
During this renovation, the long walk with its rose arbors and the lawn with its triangular beds were laid out. Rebuilding the garden that they had purchased was a real labor of love for both the Melchers, but especially for Corinne. Corinne Melchers, by the way, was a member of the Garden Club of Virginia, was active in the restorations in both Kenmore and Stratford Hall. So when the Garden Club of Virginia took this project on, this, I will say that this photograph was taken during the Melchers time at Belmont by a well-known photographer, Francis Benjamin Johnston, who was working for the, both for private customers and for the WPA at the time. So when the Garden Club of Virginia took this garden on, it was really as a restoration of a restoration, sort of a federal revival revival, as it were. The original landscape architect for the project was Rudy J. Favretti. Over the past decade, under Will Riley's supervision, Mr. Favretti's design has been considerably redefined as Belmont's remarkable director of horticulture, Beata Jensen, and curator Joanna Catron have unearthed more and more of the copious documentation they have found by combing the treasures in the attic. The Melchers bought Belmont in 1916 as a retreat from Gary's busy work as a successful painter in New York, where they moved around the time of World War I after he'd established an international reputation during decades in Europe. But the Melchers spent more and more time in Belmont and eventually, and eventually added several buildings to the landscape, including a beautiful stone summer house. And Roger Foley's lovely picture of the little summer house refers to an entry Corinne made in her diary on April 21, 1931. She said, visit Mount Vernon. I admire a little summer house and plan to have one. And a large studio for Gary. This is one of Melch's paintings to give you an idea of his style. And I always look sort of desperately at audiences when I see this picture. <laughs> I hope there's nobody asleep. <laughs> and here is another one painted near Belmont. And one of my favorite stories about Gary Melch's is that shortly after they acquired Belmont, he walked down to the village of Falmouth, and he was chatting with some of the locals at the grocery store. And somebody asked what he did, and he said he was a painter. And one of them shook his head and said, well, that's too bad, mister. You won't find much work around here. We just whitewash. <laughs> <laughs> the results of the restoration are very faithful to the garden during the Melch's tenure. This is a Roger Foley version of the picture you saw earlier taken by Francis Benjamin Johnson going the other way. But with all, as with all our restorations, there's constant reevaluation. Our experience at Belmont makes it very clear that a landscape restoration is not an event, it's a process. And I believe that this process will bring us closer and closer to the landscape so loved by Gary and Corinne Melchers. And now Will will show you some additional tidbits and current goings on at these two fascinating properties. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Margaret. Margaret uh, described this talk as uh, moving from the uh, amateur to the professional. Um, uh, it may be more of a transition from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, but we thought you'd enjoy seeing uh, a bit of uh, 
some of the behind-the-scenes uh, information that's not uh, readily available in the book. And in our early discussions uh, about what form Margaret's book would take, she decided that it would be important to include these kind of uh, traditional plan view scale drawings. Uh, but she also brought to our office a beautiful book on Irish gardens by Olda Fitzgerald uh, with these kinds of lovely uh, sepia-toned aerial perspective views. And she asked if this technique wouldn't help to explain the gardens even better. I thought it might be fun for you to see how these uh, drawings were done. Uh, we began by flying the properties and taking these uh, oblique aerial photographs. We then traced uh, the outlines, uh, and the background could be turned off at any time to check the line work. The vegetation uh, was added, and finally, uh, the sepia wash uh, was applied. Uh, Margaret said that landscape restoration is a process rather than an event. A good example of that uh, continuing process uh, is a recent request to the Restoration Committee of the Garden Club of Virginia from Belmont to consider helping to restore a missing feature in the garden. During the Melcher's tenure at Belmont, a little wooden puto uh, graced the south end of the lawn and the garden. This is another Francis Benjamin Johnson photograph. The puto started to deteriorate uh, and had to be taken uh, inside. Uh, its arm is being held on by a piece of monofilament fishing line. Uh, its pedestal, meanwhile, was used to uh, support a birdbath. Doesn't quite have the cachet that the statue did. We explored various methods of replacing the puto and finally arrived at a method in which the sculpture would be remolded, missing or broken parts would be re-sculpted, and a replica in bronze with a white finish would be cast to put back in the garden while the original could be conserved and preserved. Naturally, this kind of project is as much an art uh, as it is a science, and I told Beata Jensen and Joanna Catron, Belmont's horticulturist and curator, respectively, that a certain amount of artistic license would, be, would have to be expected. Uh, and that Ross Caudill's contemporary interpretation might not look exactly like the original. <laughs> for some reason, Beata thought it might be a good idea for all of us to go look in on the artist. Uh, here's what we found. Ross began by stripping the paint off of the sculpture to reveal a work that had many more repairs than we expected to find. Uh, because the sculpture was low-grade pine uh, with very heavy grain, Ross couldn't remove all the paint without leaving a zebra effect on the finished product. So he carefully removed everything down just to the surface of the summer wood. The sculpture had big splits and checks uh, and knots in funny places. <laughs> the next part of the process was to make a mold of each of the parts and cast them in wax. These parts were then smoothed and perfected uh, in wax before ceramic molds are made into which the bronze will be cast. But this process was not just replication of the existing object. The Francis Benjamin Johnson photograph 
showed clearly that the puto had chubby feet uh, with toes hanging over the plinth that had been simplified into awkward little booties at some point, presumably because the feet rotted off. So Ross cast the legs in plaster but sculpted new feet in clay based on the Johnston photograph and also on photos of his nephew's feet. (laughs) After all these parts were cast in wax, they were reassembled. And here is our wax model melted back together. Uh, He was then cut up again into manageable parts, and gating and venting channels were added in wax. Then a ceramic mold was formed around each part. These parts were then pulled into an oven where the wax is melted out. The process is called lost wax or cire perdu, uh, and it's been done essentially this way for over 4,000 years. The voids were then filled with molten bronze and allowed to cool. The artists get to cool down at this point, too. Now, this was all done here in Richmond, by the way. Ross, uh, on the left, uh, teaches sculpture at VCU. Now, the bronze uh, parts uh, have had the ceramic molds broken off. You can see there's some of the white still sticking to this. This uh, picture came in yesterday, by the way. This is in process. So all of the pieces will be welded back together and finished uh, in a white uh, patina uh, will be added to, uh, to it so that once again this little guy can uh, assume his prominent position at the end of the south lawn of the garden. And if you visit Belmont this spring, uh, which I hope you will, you'll see him back in place uh, much as he looked in the Melcher's time. Now I'd like to conclude where Margaret began uh, with Bacon's Castle and share with you some of our observations and speculations that have sprung from Margaret's groundbreaking research. The first relates to orientation. You can see from the north arrow at the lower right that Bacon's Castle house and garden are oriented directly with true north. Magnetic north is estimated to have been several degrees to the east of true north in the middle of the 17th century and contemporary surveying instruments would have had the capacity to make that adjustment, but it would have had to be intentional. Across the river in Jamestown, the buildings were aligned with the edge of the river, about 20 degrees off of true north, until Governor William Berkeley, same guy, returned for his second stint as governor in the second half of the 17th century. At that time, a new state house was built, not lined up with the river, but oriented with true north. The new statehouse complex and other public buildings like the new church and Arthur Allen's fine new house on the opposite side of the river reflected this shift from alignment to local features to a system that reflected a broader understanding of global orientation. Notice, too, in Jamie May's great illustration how much architectural historians think the state house looked like an elongated version of Bacon's castle. Now, aside from orientation, there are also scalar and proportional relationships that lend credence to our view uh, that this garden was carefully planned. Let's start with scale. 
The primary unit for land measurement in the 17th century was the rod or pole of 16 and a half feet in length. Originally, it was literally what the unit said, a pole. Uh, you can see in this illustration from Humphrey Repton, let me, sorry, from Humphrey, from Humphrey Repton, uh, a surveyor on the right uh, with his helper carrying such a rod. Later, a surveyor's chain would be used, but these chains were also in units of 16 and a half feet. When we overlay a one-pole grid over the Bacon's Castle garden, it's pretty compelling uh, that it was laid out in poles. The garden is 20 poles, or 330 feet uh, wide, long, and 12 poles, or 198 feet wide, which equals exactly an acre and a half. The red line from the edge of path to edge of path east-west is five poles. The blue line from edge of path to edge of path north-south is six poles. But there's more. An important proportion seems to be at play here. Now bear with me. If we start with a square of one unit on a side, its diagonal, we know from Pythagoras' theorem, is the square root of two. Now, if we rotate the diagonal to form the side of a new rectangle, its proportion is 1 to the square root of 2. Now, this proportion is very close to the fraction 99 70ths, which was adopted early on uh, as shorthand uh, for this proportion. It's been called a harmonic proportion or the Pythagorean mean. It's not a golden rectangle, which is something else entirely. Now, here's the interesting part. Remember, from edge of path to edge of path north-south was six poles, which is 99 feet. The interior dimension of the bed measured on the Lucchetti plan is 70 feet. So this is not only the same proportion, it uses the same numbers, 99 and 70. It's even more compelling, I think, to put all of the rectangles together. So this proportion was kicking around in England in the late 17th century when young Allen was in school, and certainly by the time this garden was being laid out. It seems very unlikely uh, uh, that this is um, merely a subsistence garden, uh, as had previously been argued. Now let's end with a remarkable uh, garden feature uh, that Margaret alluded to earlier. These three, there could have been four, uh, foundations are really intriguing. Here's how the archaeologists drew one of them. Uh, there's an 8-inch wide brick wall running vertically in this view and a 12-inch wide wall running uh, side to side. Uh, you can see the pattern also uh, in this photograph. Now, Nick Lucchetti feels that these features were almost certainly this kind of turf seat, common in Tudor and Elizabethan gardens. The walled back would make them, in effect, in effect exedras. At Bacon's Castle, if we take Nick's dimension and sweep them vertically, this is how they would relate to the garden paths. If we add plants, textures, and people, we get a better idea of how they might have looked. Had they actually been built, which I think is very likely, we still have more research to do, they would have been the only example 
of this kind of garden feature to have ever been built in America, right here in Virginia. The Ralph Griswold quote uh, on the inside front leaf of Margaret's book seems to sum up a lot of this field quite nicely. He wrote that by preserving its historic gardens and the grounds of its churches and its universities, Virginia has become an outdoor museum of an art that has, since the beginning, challenged man's ingenuity. Margaret Page Bemis's delightful book is a wonderful record of that effort by the Garden Club of Virginia over the last quarter century. Thank you. Yes, be happy to. <laughs> if anybody has any questions, we'd be glad to try to answer them. And there are people with microphones who will come to you. So I'm not going to recognize anybody's hands because the microphone ladies will do so. And then we will answer it if we can. So raise your hands if you have a question, and the microphone will come. What sort of plants were in these gardens, and were those plants native Virginia plants? That's yours. Want me to take a crack yeah, at you that? Take a crack yeah. at that one. Plants were brought from England just the same way animals were from the very earliest uh, time. So, so you would expect vegetables and ornamental flowers to have been. Uh, transported, and there were lots of those. Uh, but increasingly, uh, from the particularly early part of the 19th century, there was more and more interest in American plants, and they were not only grown here in gardens, but they were then exported back to, uh, to England. But we think that uh, the Bacon's Castle Garden in particular uh, would have been a very English uh, garden, and that uh, the uh, use of American plants, some of them adopted uh, for medicinal purposes from the uh, Native Americans, uh, would have found their way into the garden. But that, the real interest in American plants came a little bit later. Also, in the, in the back of the book, there is a plant list with the dates of the introduction of those plants to this country. We hope, I mean, not only is it, I mean, it was fun to do all this research and dig up all this stuff, but it also ought to be a very useful book, we hoped, to the profession, to historians, and to the backyard gardener, because it's got very good plant lists, which Will's office did, and it has all the plans, which can be modified or copied or what have you. So we hoped it would be a useful as well as ornamental book. I was very impressed with all the work that was done with the Puto at Belmont, and I wondered how it was paid for. <laughs> yeah, well, it was paid for by the Restoration Committee of the Garden Club of Virginia, and that's the kind of... It, all of these gardens have been financed by the proceeds from Historic Garden Week in Virginia, which is the old... It started in 1929... For some reason, they didn't have it in 1930, and it's been absolutely uninterrupted from then on, except for the two years of the, maybe three of the World War II. But it's the oldest house and garden 
such event in the country and, and the longest running, and that's where your money goes to restore these gardens. And that's why we have geniuses like Mr. Riley, so we do it right. Thanks. Thank you all very much. <laughs>